Hello and welcome to this May edition of The Crit, and we are slightly demob happy this month. Producer Evie is uh, away from the control desk, and while the cat's away, uh, the mice will play. The animals Uh, are running the zoo! Exactly. In place of uh, producer Evie, we have today publisher Chris, assuming his greatest role to date as producer Chris, expecting him to be a real soft touch, very much hands-off producing... Oh, he's glaring at me. Oh, no, he's nodding. <laughs> um, so po- possibly uh, possibly some bad behaviour in, in this episode of The Crit, which is ironic because our, our big topic for this month is, is ethics, I suppose. Right, India? Ethics and design. Yeah, no, bad behaviour seems to have become a bit of a theme with um, our, our episode this month uh we should say that it's going to be a little bit shorter than usual because we have a treat waiting for you once you've gone through your ethical vegetables <laughs> a delicious pudding uh this yeah this we've got an interview with the designer jean lee in new york which we'll tell you about a little bit later uh jean from uh, ladies and gentlemen studio and is the curator of a very interesting new exhibition taking place at nyc by design. I, I don't know how you pronounce that actually. Is it NYC X design, NYC by design, NYC times design? I've never heard it said. I only ever see it written down. Yeah, I think the way you say by is the smart way of saying it because I've definitely gone around pronouncing any sort of collaboration that uses the trendy X as X or timesed by. But that is, <laughs> that's not right. It is by. That's what the X symbol means, right? I assume so. Yeah. I mean, I didn't cover this in my interview with Jean, so I already feel I've let the team down. This is the question everyone wants answers to. It's a million dollar question. Uh, But plenty of other interesting things in that. So stick around towards the end of the podcast and you'll get to hear that. But in the meantime, let's press on with the episode. So our first story today is a little bit of a follow-up of something we've covered before with Desenio, the journal of which we're the editors and online. I don't think we've ever covered it on the crit, but long-time listeners may be able to correct us. This is the story of Yeezy. So recently Adidas has announced it's going to sell its stock of unsold Yeezy shoes and donate some of the proceedings to charity. Um, This is after Adidas having severed its working relationship with Kanye West back in October 2022, and after which point it stopped selling Yeezys um, as a result of some deeply, deeply anti-Semitic comments that Kanye West made at the time. Yeah, and I do do empathise with Adidas that this is like, I can understand why it's taken them, what, October 2022? Is that six months to make this decision of yeah. what to do yeah, ish. with Half this stock? Um, it's got a an estimated market value of 1 billion euros. So that's all of the unsold Yeezy shoes, etc., um, which is which is a lot of money. Um, and the company had been debating for a while whether it was going to um, donate it or sell it or destroy it, which sounds pretty extreme, but we've we've had a lot of coverage in the past kind of five years about what happens to unsold high-end designer stock that it often gets burnt yep. so that, um, you know, it doesn't devalue the brand by selling it at outlet prices or <laughs> donating it, which is really yeah. twisted, but... The only way to preserve the brand is to destroy it all, <laughs> put it to the flame. 
Well, in this case, I'm like, may, maybe maybe they should... No, they shouldn't have incinerated no, it. it, it but... It's been a complex issue. So for anyone who doesn't know this story, um, this is why it's such an issue. Uh, if you're asking what did Kanye West do, uh, it's kind of, kind of more of a question been? of what he didn't do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the round of controversy, what has led to this situation, starts back in October 2022, although... I mean, probably you could go back further than that if you wanted to. Uh, Kanye West uh, went to Paris Fashion Week and wore a White Lives Matter shirt, which, you know, is, um, I think, the National Defamation League classes as hate speech. There was a lot of uproar about that. As that began to be discussed in the media and within the design world and fashion, it quickly descended into Kanye West making frequent social media posts, podcast appearances, interviews, in which he made some pretty shocking anti-Semitic comments. Um, Outrageous stuff quickly became untenable for a lot of the design organisations that had working relationships with Kanye West. He was dropped by Balenciaga and Adidas later that month, uh, as well as Vogue, actually. Vogue said it would no longer feature him. And then, then his behaviour sort of hit a, a really a new nadir when he went on Alex Jones's show. I mean, <laughs> a bad idea to begin with, to go on Alex Jones's show. Um, uh, on which he denied the Holocaust. He, he openly praised Hitler. But so that that's why this has become such a thing. Obviously, in that situation, uh, Adidas has a huge amount of Yeezy stock. It had been a very successful collaboration for the company, uh, financially anyway, and they were undecided as to what to do about that. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not surprised that, that Vogue dropped him as well. Uh, Teen Vogue is actually very good, very um, strong on reporting on issues around uh, race and labour issues. But um, yeah, the the big question was, what are they going to do with it? Uh, Chief Executive Bjorn Golden um, has come out and said that the company is going to... <laughs> Bjorn Golden sounds like a made-up businessman. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like ABBA's accountant. Yeah. <laughs> Bjorn has said that they are going to try to sell parts of the product... I mean, I assume that doesn't mean they're going to take them apart for parts, but maybe some of them they'll <laughs> The sell. laces are not racist. The rest of the shoes are deeply racist, but we think the laces are okay. And then they're going to donate some of the money to charities representing people who were, quote, were hurt, unquote, by West's comments. Um, haven't said how much money will be donated or exactly to who, yeah. Um, which I, I think is interesting. We can get into that in a little bit. Um, yeah, because I, I don't know whether that's they don't want to disclose it or just this plan hasn't really been worked out yet. Could, could be either. Yeah. I suspect more the latter. I think they've said they don't know the specifics of how this is going to work and they yeah, need to think about it. They don't it, know but... how much money it's going to make. Um, they have said that they are not, probably not, going to make a profit. Probably <laughs> doing a lot of work there, I guess. I think. It would be very funny if in the next uh, report to shareholders, Bjorn Golden says, we're shocked, we've made a massive profit. I mean, <laughs> we never expected it, but... There is a chance that could happen. I remember after all of this first kind of news came out um, when Kanye was dropped that 
the value of Yeezys, like the street value, went up. Oh, yes, yeah. Because, um, I mean, rarity, scarcity is this model that so many streetwear and fashion brands rely on, mm. especially now, to drum up sales. So it makes sense that if, if everyone knew that these are the last Yeezys you'd ever get, yeah, yeah. Then, then people will pay more for them. And I imagine with this final load of of unsold stock, there could be that sort of similar market forces Mm. at play. I I mean, one person who will make money off this is Kanye West. Uh, Adidas have already said they will have to pay royalties to him for the designs when they sell them. And that's a... Do you think they just couldn't get... Do you reckon they've been spending the past six months just getting their lawyers to go over and over this contract to try and to find a loophole? To figure out if there's a way out of it. I, I, who knows? I mean, this is speculation, but probably? Because because that's the really bad thing. Like, I should say, there are, there are some good things about this, right? The decision that these shoes just won't be burned. I think, burnt. Mm. I think that would be uh, environmentally a really bad thing to do. Uh, arguably ethically really poor to, to to destroy a number of shoes which could be donated potentially to, to people who need shoes. Yeah, I guess, um, although it depends what these shoes come to symbolise. If if Kanye ever becomes a far-right figurehead... Um, yeah, oh, yeah. Like, I'm not saying this wouldn't have its complexities, but... Yeah, yeah, no, I guess, I'm guessing... I'm glad they're not being burnt. Yeah. I do feel uncomfortable with the fact that they're going to be sold and that he is going to benefit yeah. from that sale. C- uh, clear downsides to this. should take some interesting reporting in the Financial Times who spoke to Joseph Schuster, uh, president of the Central Council of Jews in Germany, who said that Adidas's willingness to donate some money had to be highly appreciated, but added that it was very problematic that West was going to have financial gains from further Yeezy sales. Uh, she's adding, from my perspective, the wrong party, by which he means Adidas, is going to be punished here. Um, that's an interesting comment because mm. it's obviously it's Kanye West who has done these appalling things. I think that a lot of questions have swirled around um, is Adidas entirely innocent in all of this? So, for for instance, a number of investors in Adidas are currently suing the company who claim that Adidas or leadership at Adidas knew about Kanye West's behaviour for years before it ended the partnership. Okay, he hadn't made these public anti-Semitic comments, but uh, the allegations are that he had a long track record of unpleasant, bizarre, unprofessional, alienating behaviour, which executives in Adidas, they they allege, were in a position to know about. Um, There's actually a really interesting piece, if anyone wants to find out more about this, that was published in Rolling Stone. Um, And this was um, put together by... uh, conversations a lot of conversations with staff from Adidas who said they'd worked with Kanye West on Yeezy who said that West's uh, problematic behavior was overlooked because the company turned its moral compass off and some of the allegations in that piece are quite shocking yeah I mean from what I heard his bad behavior was something of an of an open secret for years within the fashion industry 
And in some ways, I do think brands such as Adidas, who profited massively up until very recently out of his profile, um, enabled him in a way. I mean, you don't suddenly wake up one morning and start behaving erratically like this. This is someone who has not had someone to say no to them for a very long time. And they would happily have gone along with it until it got to the point where it was such a public relations disaster that it was more profitably sound in the long run to cut ties with him. Yeah, I, I, I think so. As as you say, these specific allegations, okay, he hadn't said that publicly, but it, I think everyone in design has known for a long time there were lots of oddities swirling around Kanye West. It's been in all of the newspapers and so on. Difficult, problematic behaviour. In that Rolling Stone article, for instance, uh, there's reports of bullying, a toxic environment, or frequently making his staff watch pornography with him. Um should yeah. say Adidas has has denied knowing about these allegations um, and says that its own independent investigation failed to back them up. But like you say, there, there does seem to have been a willingness to indulge this and to indulge um, a, a lot of Kanye West's difficult sides because it was making money. I mean, Bjorn Golden explicitly said in a quote... Um, as difficult as he was, he is perhaps the most creative mind in our industry. Now, interpret that as you like. I suspect what he means by most creative mind in our industry is person who made Adidas a lot of money. Yeah, and we find this every time with kind of uh, great men, and they are usually men, um, who rise to the top, make lots of people lots of money. Eventually it comes out about how awful they were, especially to the least powerful people in the organizations, their personal assistants, their staff, the people who have been starting their industry careers. And then everyone kind of turns around and makes the shocked Pikachu face. Like, oh, we had no idea they were behaving this badly. And it means either you were being willfully blind or you don't care about those people you don't see junior staff or um, the people that are targeted by bullying creative geniuses in scare quotes. And I think this happens a lot all over the creative industry. I mean, it's kind of the same with Harvey Weinstein. It's yeah. the same with, uh, you know, big profile comedians who are suddenly getting their comeuppance. The signs are there. Um, it's, it's a willingness to not read the signs because you're laughing all the way to the bank until you're not. Yeah, I, I think that's what's so depressing about it. As, as you say, people only act against it. Companies only start making it an issue when financially it's in their interest to do so. That's what's so depressing about this. And as you say, this is this is widespread across the creative industries. And that, that flows neatly into our second story for the week, mm-hmm. which... Okay, it's a different story, but some recurring themes, actually. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you you introduce this, India. Thank you for setting me up with a perfect segue. And thank you to the mysterious uh, resident of the building we're currently recording in who's been playing some ominous uh, bass lines that you might be able to hear in the background. Um, this isn't a new sound production technique that we've employed. Uh, oh, someone's just 
Our, de- our desk is vibrating. The desk is now vibrating with these sick beats. Um, let this ominous yeah. <laughs> rhythm fill you as I inform you yeah. of the latest debate. I should, I should say, in the interest of transparency, uh, you might not be able to tell because Evie will have flawlessly edited this episode. But in between us finishing the last section and starting this one, we actually stopped for a little bit. So producer Chris could go and look to try and find the source of the music and, and came back and told us, I don't know where it's coming from. It's just, it's just everywhere. <laughs> it's just in the air. I think it might be like a spin class. Because, again, maybe interesting for listeners, we're recording in a, a skyscraper in Bank. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's not a natural place for a nightclub, but it's that kind of quite pulsing thing. Yeah, especially at 3.30 on a... Oh, they've stopped. Maybe the spin set is over. Quick, on with the news. Make a a break for it. (laughs) Make Um, hay while the sun shines. This is one of these kind of weird moments of confluence where a lot of news has come out on one topic at the same time, and I'm not sure (laughs) if they're connected. All converging on one awful end point. (laughs) Yeah. So um, we've covered the uh, Neom Megacity project and the line on here before quick recap for those who haven't listened to previous episodes or have been blessed enough to not know what this is um it is a vast construction project that is currently underway in the deserts of saudi arabia it's a saudi government scheme um they want to build you know the greenest most crazy high-tech smart ticking smart techie smart techie smart techie city <laughs> smart tech city in the world there's a million and one different reasons why it's a bad idea, but we're going to be focusing mm. mainly on the human rights issues here. Yeah, not the fact it looks like a sort of city general Zod would set up in this huge mirrored fortress in the desert. Yeah, no, it looks incredibly silly and there's no way it'll work in a way that it's, <laughs> it, it claims it will. But it can do a lot, a lot of harm in the interim Leading up to it's not working. Yeah, yeah. but th- this, exactly what we're doing here as two critics mouthing off about uh, Neom and the line is what infuriated the architect and broadcaster Conley Baker to uh, enough to go and write an opinion piece that was published in the Architects Journal a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, with a t- And the title is pretty funny. That's probably the only good thing about the piece. Um, <laughs> Who made you the sheriff of ethics town? <laughs> And to that it's we an say, us. <laughs> we are the sheriffs of Ethics Town. The people did. Um, yeah, so basically Baker went to bat for David Ajay and Peter Cook. Um, he saw them in need of defending. Who, who were working on yeah, the Neon we should project. Say, uh, um, it, they're not the only architects by any means. A huge number of studios mm-hmm. uh, signed up in various capacities to work on this yeah, project. Yeah, it's, it's also we kind of don't know exactly who is doing what because there's a lot of various practices that have been involved in uh, different stages of exhibitions and plans for the city. Um, but those are two big names that have been attached to the project. Um, yes, there is some ominous yeah. Something base in the, the beat background. dropped <laughs> just as we got to a more <laughs> serious part of the conversation. Our neighbours have decided to give us some um, foley effects in the form of some seriously impressive speaker systems. The floor is vibrating beneath my feet. <laughs> so uh, Baker wrote this piece, um, basically saying that you know ethics are personal and um, not a political thing and. I quote, 
creating a museum, train station or city for a regime is not the same as condoning its political policies. Which... (laughs) (laughs) It's an extraordinary piece for so many reasons. I I mean, the the aspect I find most bizarre, in a way, I, I think the argument doesn't make any sense. But just that starting premise of ethics are personal and the idea... You shouldn't consider someone else's... Like, ethics, the whole point of them strikes me is that they're public. It's about how people interact with one another, about what we deem acceptable and not acceptable. I I find that a a really bizarre thing to start with, just saying sort of, oh, ethics are, you know, it's this little sealed up world. Each person has their own. Just let them get on with it. Um, Yeah. An extraordinary reading of what ethics are. And the architecture exists in this bubble and it's all about what you find and other people's work that's an exciting or an inspiring experience. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a rich text. Go read it if you want a good laugh, I guess. Yeah. But um, what was most bizarre is that, you know, it was published this month in May and right at the start of this month, the UN, so, you know, serious people that know what they're talking about when it comes to human rights uh, released a statement on Mm. the situation um, with regards to NEOM and it was pretty frank and um, it pointed out that you know it's just become an ethical quagmire Um, they uh, were particularly concerned um, and this is from their press release that was released on the 3rd of May from their Geneva headquarters. They've expressed alarm at the imminent risk of the execution of three members of a local tribe, and the UN has urged authorities to halt this process. So three men have been sentenced to death. Uh, I think there's at least three others who've been sentenced to uh, long prison mm-hmm. sentences uh, for essentially resisting forced eviction. Yeah, they've, they've been charged with uh, terrorism, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, a, a, a big part of the communication around Neom, I think, has been this idea of it's the city of the future, this new vision of urbanism, of sustainable practice, growing up in, in the middle of a desert somewhere where nothing was before. And isn't that exciting? Which, of course, is a lie. There were things there before. There were people living there and they're being evicted to enable this. Um it, it it's outrageous and, and disgusting what is happening to those people and this is this is widely known this is not a surprise or a secret to anyone this has been reported on for quite some time i think architects who are working on this project are, are well aware of these human rights abuses you know there's no i don't think there's much cr- credibility in bleeding that you don't know about it or aren't aware of the ethical issues around this project. Yeah, there's no subtext here. There's no kind of secret undercover journalism going on. The UN's panel of experts have come out and said, these actions would certainly amount to forced evictions, which are prohibited under international law as a violation of the right to adequate housing. The actions also constitute flagrant violations of the rights to freedom of expression and access information and they go on to say we urge all companies involved including foreign investors to ensure that they are not causing or contributing to and are not directly linked to serious human rights abuses Mm. i mean the united nations has spoken (laughs) (laughs) 
And it, you can be called, you know, that you can be called into question. It is on the people that are working on these projects to make absolutely sure that there's not a human rights issue here. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think the point you make about the timing of all this is particularly interesting because at the time of recording this, mm. uh, the architecture world, well, a lot of it anyway, has descended on Venice for the Venice Architecture Biennale. And uh, we're not in Venice. We're not in Venice. We're in no a noisy we're in a noisy us. building with pumping music. Um but uh, I'll tell you who is in Venice. Uh, Neon is in Venice, right? Neon uh, yeah. is exhibiting in Venice. Yeah, they um, are, you know, clearly uh, unfazed by the UN um, coming coming out against them. They've got an exhibition called Zero Gravity Urbanism, Principles for a New Livability, uh, which is on, on show this week. Uh, I should say, you know, obviously we're not there. We haven't seen it. We can't comment on the content, um, although... But the, what they've put out, the that press this release is, this is, is another focused on, on the line, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which yes. is that super tall, mirrored city uh, stretching across the desert. Yeah, and, and I guess said, the zero gravity is a reference to the fact that it's like super tall and can't be constrained <laughs> by the Earth's gravitational forces. It's a big, uh, you know, middle finger up to gravity to build that high. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they've said the line is a civilizational revolution that puts humans first providing an unprecedented urban living experience while preserving the surrounding nature. It redefines the concept of urban development and what cities of the future should look like. Uh, Exciting stuff. It just sounds like it's been written by an AI that's been trained on estate agent nonsense. An evil AI. Yeah, also a civilizational revolution that puts humans first when... The UN is literally saying you're doing a human rights abuse. It's, it's so rich. It's it's blissfully lacking in self-awareness, isn't it? But the, I mean, this is part of it. It's exhibiting there to try and get this gloss of respectability to the project to, I think, position uh, a lot of what Saudi Arabia is doing as, as progressive and international and future-leaning. That's that's kind mm. of part of the aim of this. and Yeah, yeah, they, it's they, not just about selling apartments in this future city. It's about... It's a lot of soft power Yeah, and it's about this. trying to be part of conversations about the future of urban planning, trying to gain this, I guess, it's like intellectual washing. Is that a word? Like greenwashing, but for smart. Archiewashing? Archiewashing. Archiewashing. Yeah. City washing. City washing, yeah, mm, praxis washing. <laughs> uh, but you, you looked into it and they've got some quite big names lined up to speak as, as part of this exhibition, correct? Yeah, yeah, so I'll be, I'll be very interested to see what they have to say over the coming weeks. Um, so they've, they've put up um, their list of speakers. Peter Cook, who we've mentioned previously, has been involved with this, um, you know, he's a big name in British architecture used to be fairly radical so this is is disappointing Um, his conversation is going to be how cities can be reinvented to better serve people and the planet Uh, that's going to be followed the next day with a conversation with Jean Nouvel on how 
cities can provide a more equitable, impactful and beautiful public realm. Um, Massimiliano Fuxas and Doriana Fuxas are speaking on 27th of May about how cities can bring people closer to nature. Mm. I mean, the desert is obviously nature, but I don't think you're going to be getting very close <laughs> to it if you're going to be living on top of a 200 meter tall skyscraper. I, I just find there to be something incredibly intellectually dishonest about this whole thing. I think some of the justifications given by people are, it's good to engage, isn't it? And there are lessons we can take and apply elsewhere. And we should be thinking about cities of the future and how we can design differently. I don't, I don't know what the line says about any other city. It's like, it's a sort of one-off multi billion megacit like what what does the creation of this huge vertical city in the desert tell you about how you should reuse buildings in other cities like it, it strikes me as such a singular thing i i fail to engage i i fail to understand what engaging with tells you about anything else which i think is is one of the moves some of its defenders try to make and i i just think that's a lie i don't understand that at all how participation in neom is in some way participation in the future of the discipline because it's not as if i don't know like every other country is going to look and go oh that multi-billion mirror, mirror city was really good actually we should probably do one of those shall we bulldoze hull and stick a multi-billion mirror city in the on the edge of the humber like what what is it telling you about anything else or or like brazil is going oh it's really good actually yeah let's knock down all the amazon and put five of them in or something it's well, I mean, I, I other, really other despotic regimes will probably be out there going, how much can we get away with? Yeah, how in much impartiality, can you do right under desp- the nose of the international community and still swan around Venice drinking champagne and having top architects come to talk about how you're the future of green urban living? Yeah, in the spirit of balance, other despotic regimes are available. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it, it it's it's a shocking thing, and and I, th- I think like we, like we talked about with Kanye West, and this is not unique to the creative industries by any stretch of the imagination. It's everywhere, but it's appalling the number of people who are willing to go along with projects, initiatives that everyone knows are ethically dubious, that everyone knows there are issues with. But people just go, ah, oh, well, you know, it's it's good to engage, isn't it? And we have to speak about this. And you think, ah, oh, I think you're doing it for the money, largely, right? That's the motivation. You can make a lot of money off this. Yeah, I mean, everyone clearly needs to take a holiday in ethics town. Um, I think you're exactly right. It's this kind of emperor's new clothes situation where you're just looking at it and you're like, how? How, how are we all sitting around and pretending that this is fine and this is okay? Uh, yeah, also this idea that we can just sit down and have rational debate. Um, you know, obviously debate is good. Conversation is good. You're listening to a podcast conversation right now, but being some things aren't up for debate and like human rights is one of those and being sucked into a debate about whether we can ever learn something from a project like this is is just deliberate derailment. I think. Yeah, I, I think it's just wishful ex- thinking in the extreme, isn't it? A lot of people who are involved in projects like this, there's that idea of, hmm, 
hmm, could it actually be this project I could make a lot of money on is in fact good? Like, would you be doing it if it wasn't a lot of money? You know, people constantly say this. Actually, I think it's really important. It's really valuable. We speak about this. It's good, actually. You think, well... If you weren't making however much off it, would you feel the same? Like the, the extraordinarily, extraordinary intellectual gymnastics people will go through in order to attempt to justify something like this. No, it is the children that are wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I don't think I have much to add to that. Um, the AJ has published another opinion piece that uh, is pretty much a direct response. Um, that, that went up today, day of recording, 17th May. Um, written by Sarah G- Gaventa and um, yeah it's a pretty good piece I'd recommend you go and read it um, she's got some some good singers um, she says I'm pretty sure a project where the community engagement seems to involve executions must fall well below the Reba's acceptable code of contact uh, which yeah I mean maybe don't work on projects for you know people who love Nazis or people who are putting people to death it's a cheery solid, episode. Solid design advice. Anyway, we did say that you're gonna have to eat your vegetables first, but um, but it's all it's all it's all going up from now. We've got some nice amuse bouches, some products and projects. Our, our first delicious titbit is the Cura board. Uh, this is a nice new project from Studio Mama, the studio of Nina Tolstrup and Jack Mama. Um, and it's a balance board. It's an exercise board for a new brand called Cotto, um, based in London. And the idea behind Cotto is that a lot of home exercise gear, okay, it's really good. It's, um, you know, good to be healthy, good good to stay active, uh, but it's ugly as sin, right? It's often that very plasticky, very stark, jimmy aesthetic. And so their suggestion is, could we not have some exercise gear that's a bit more uh, domestic uh, in its look, that's a bit more beautiful? So the Cotto is a balance board, but it's um, milled from a solid piece of wood. It's very handsome. And when it's not in use, rather than uh, stuffing it under your sofa to keep it out of sight, out of mind, you can hang it up on your wall where it just looks like a beautiful sculpture. Uh, I went and saw it when it was exhibited in London and uh, it's very nice indeed. Yeah, I think these are gorgeous. And, um, I, you know, I'm I'm being very influenced by TikTok and I actually want one of those walking pads that you can put under like a standing desk and you can just walk. It's like a little mini treadmill, but for walking. Oh, right. Um, but they're hideous. They, they're really <laughs> ugly. Um, whereas this looks so nice. Although I think if I tried to take a meeting while balancing on a balance board, it would be embarrassing for everyone involved. Yeah. I don't have the coordination, but it does look really cool. <laughs> I, I had to go on it, actually. It, it's good fun. It, I, I don't think it is intended to be one of those things you're on all day. I think it's more oh, okay. you it's have a not... quick go on it. You know, it's a mm. nice fun thing. In, in fact, I think a part of it is this notion that one barrier to exercise can be this idea that at the end of the day, you're going to go for an hour and do a really hard workout. Like for all sorts of reasons, someone might not like that. This is, it's almost gamified, you know, it's just a beautiful, fun little board. You can get on for a little bit and have a go, which is kind of interesting to have gamification in the context of something physical, because I think normally that's more something you see in app or or something like that but 
it's 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 a very nice piece. I mean, it's it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, have... Yeah, I was I was hoping you were you know they was maybe going to give you one for free, and then when you told me the price tag, I was <laughs> I was shocked. I think for my core training, I'll just ride the tube and not hold on to the handlebars because uh, yeah, this, this is expensive. It, it tilts. You know, it, it's this piece which is straddling this hybrid between. Um, sculpture closer to a work of art and a functional piece of equipment and because of the sort of production of it it's it's a complex piece to mill it it probably skews more towards that art end so i think one version is a thousand nine hundred and fifty pound another one is one thousand six hundred and fifty so it's it's a substantial investment for sure i think it's a really smart piece of design though and a nice one and it's interesting because price is something we probably should talk more about in design. You know, it's a really important thing. It determines the success of a lot of products. It determines who can get access to. But it's often seen as, a, I think, a little bit of, um, I don't know, is it a bit gauche to discuss often yeah, in the media? Yeah, gauche is what I was going to say. And also I've worked at places where the style guide was to never include the price because then it looked like marketing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. If you include the price, you kind of assume that you are selling the product, I suppose. Yeah, like, I, you might I, read the price of something in a fashion magazine, but you you wouldn't in a design one, which is very interesting. We're very coy about the subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, which I get, which I, I think there are good reasons for that. But there are downsides as well, right? It, it is important. It determines who's going to be able to use this. And actually, I have to say, I, I found both Cotto and Studio Mama very open about that. They were interesting discussing it. Um, I think it's a great piece of design if if you can if you have the money and they are targeting architects you know specifying architects more than they are a sort of average consumer but by all means get one it's beautiful yeah, they're, it's they're well made piece. you're paying for craft there staying in the realm I suppose of uh, more collectible design or this more hand design uh, I also had the the pleasure <laughs> earlier this week of speaking to Konstantin Gacic, a fantastic designer, uh, done super interesting projects across a huge range of different typologies. I think best known for his furniture and lighting. Uh, Constantine has a new collection, which he's showing at Gallery Creo in Paris. Uh, this is called Transformation, and it's largely lighting. Uh, a couple of tables in there. But the idea is these pieces are all made up from these perforated aluminium extrusions, um, which look a little bit like Meccano. I love Meccano, so I'm already in. Great product. Actually, one thing they really look like, um, these lights, because they're quite complex forms. They look like the lighting rigs above stage, you know, where you've got those beautiful like black Mm -hmm. tracks running everywhere. Uh, They look like that, but very aesthetic and... um, it, it launches soon, so so images will start to get out there. And I really recommend people seek these out. They're, they're very, very interesting and, and and a good story behind them as well, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you were the one who had the conversation, so you can probably explain it better than I could. But from what I understand, um, it was made using something that Constantine took from the car industry. And yep. like, what's his connection to the car industry? Is it just is something he found? Well, is he, does he like cars? Uh, I think he does like cars. I think he, I think he's interested in that like kind of heavy industry mm. and he, he's interested in cars as design phenomena. 
Um, I think he also just has an interest in looking at areas of industry which perhaps haven't been considered in design. You know, different forms of design can get very siloed. So this product is called Alufix. Uh, I think it's Alufix. It might be Alufix. Um, let's say Alufix. Um, and and ba- it, is it a tool, right? Yeah, That's so it's, it's these sort of modular aluminium elements. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you can build them up and what you build them up into is measuring uh, measuring jigs for car body panels. Mm-hmm. So using this system, you're basically creating the negative structure that would fit around this new vehicle. Like it's mm-hmm. a way of checking everything is within its tolerances uh, uh, and so on. So it's super practical. It just so happens it looks very aesthetic or beautiful. And I think Constantine was telling me one of the interesting things about that world of gallery design is you know, he's upfront about it. There is a commercial impetus there, obviously. You're trying to sell these pieces. But it's free of some of the very intense commercial elements that a lot of design would have. So he said it's one of those spaces you do get to do more these just bits of research, what's interesting you. And I think he found this product and found it's very beautiful. It's really fascinating. It's almost a ready-made um, it would involve working with a company who, whose clients are car manufacturers. Yeah, you know, so they're, they're dealing with BMW. Made out of Alufixes, so it's not just they're made to look like No, them. no, no. They've he's he's worked, he's worked with oh, the company so who cool. produces mm-hmm. Alufix. And he said that, you know, that's an interesting thing for Alufix as well, because one of the really interesting things is this is kind of a reversal of how that company usually works, because in car manufacture... You, you can build these things up as you, as you want. You know, there's there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Uh, all that matters is that you get the right negative, right? They have to prescribe the right shape mm-hmm. and the actual structure of that could be very different. Whereas what Constantine is doing is much more precise. You know, what, what matters are the pieces themselves and how they're, they're assembled. So I think it was quite a different experience for Alifix working in that realm and he, I, I just think it's it's a very interesting project. I think he's he's a very clever designer, always very thoughtful in the work he does, challenging some preconceptions about design. And you know, the, the, this is an interesting one. I think this world of gallery design comes in for a lot of flack sometimes, because sometimes it's just you know expensive expensive objects for expensive people. Um, but you get some really interesting technical innovations there as well i mean one of one of the creo shows my favorite ones which i've always loved actually constantine again uh he did back in 2011 called champions and he made this domestic furniture which was just kind of emblazoned with you know that almost like really trashy sports branding mm, you get mm-hmm. on sports equipment really bold and in like your on, face. Your, on your tennis ball canister yeah exactly or like on a hockey stick very vibrant mm-hmm. and kind of looks great in its own way it's just it's an aesthetic which stays very locked into that area and he applied it to furniture which i think is an interesting thing love that show uh seek it out if you can online but um while you're there maybe check out transformations the new the new show i think it's an interesting one Worth keeping an eye on. And you've been super busy because last week you took a little trip to the north to see the Farrell Centre, which is very exciting. I think it might be the Farrell Centre. The Farrell Centre would be um, the lead <laughs> Happy singer without a roof. of the Neptunes. <laughs> 
he's ha- he likes Louis Vuitton, but he's also moved to Newcastle to get in on the <laughs> urbanism game. Uh, Sorry, Farrell. Okay. Um, <laughs> so Terry Farrell, the architect. Um, yeah, the, the, the Farrell Centre is this new... Uh, space to promote public engagement with architecture and urbanism uh, it's under the direction of the curator Owen Hopkins, uh, formerly of the Sir John Soane's Museum. And, and the Farrell Centre is interesting because it, it, it's not the first centre of its kind, but it's a very um, full-throated embodiment of this idea that Terry Farrell put forward in 2014, which was a call for every city to have an urban room. And by that he meant a place where people can come together to debate their city's future. So we, we've talked about quite exclusive forms of design in the last two sections. This is very much how do you make a form of design, uh, urbanism, architecture, that can be very elitist and transform that into something everyone has a stake in and cares about and can learn about. Yeah, like this is the polar opposite of what Neom are doing at Venice, where they're having very high-level conversations with only the very wealthiest uh, people in the room. This is about uh, getting the citizens of a place to come together to talk about what they need from that place. And the planning yeah, totally. system in the UK certainly is is very opaque. Oh, know? opaque you, as hell, yeah. You're not going to come yeah. into contact with it uh, in any sort of way where you have agency unless you are like owning a property and trying to do something to it it's it's most often something that is done to you by local businesses or local councils yeah absolutely and and the aim of this center and what owen and his team are doing is trying to reverse that Uh, i think it is extremely elitist and exclusionary as you say you don't come into contact with it i think one of the other challenges is it can be immensely boring i i (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know how better to put that, but lots of... The sound ur- of city is... planners roaring yeah. in outrage there. It, it's not boring when you get into it, but I think the presentation of it mm. is often immensely boring. And I sometimes wonder, is that a bid to keep people out? <laughs> how can we make this as boring as possible so no one will engage? And so what they're doing is trying to find ways to make this more participatory, to make it clear this affects everyone and you should have a say in it. And this is interesting stuff where you can reflect on the future of the city. And I I have to say, I think the Farrell Centre have done a good job of it initially, because this is something loads of people are trying to do. And it's really hard. Like, how do you get people to engage? But it's quite nice. They're opening exhibition more with less. Um, It's a series of installations from different practices, all quite visual, all quite grabbing. Um, The Farrell Centre is a converted old Victorian department store, so very big windows. So you can actually see these things from the outside. You know, in lots of ways, commercial architecture isn't good for curatorial, right? Big windows are quite hard to curate Mm -hmm. around. But one thing it does is make it very open to the street in the sense of there's something going on in there and, and you can go in and see it. And that exhibition is all about architecture in, in an era of climate change um, and is intended to present installations that maybe challenge a little bit what you think about what architecture is and perhaps present a different view of it. They're, they're quite funny uh, installations as well. One is a kind of mycelium structure grown on wool another one is pink uh, fluffy walls oh my god yeah another one is pink fluffy walls around how can you improve insulation um 
Yeah, it's that kind of different vision of what architecture could be. Can architecture be something more retrofit, more witty? Can it be something that is that mycelium is self-repairing? Could you have that? And sort of shifting architecture away from this very monolithic, uh, dropped in, something people have no stake in and can't change. How can you build layers upon layers? And they've, they've, they've done a really nice job of it. The other side of it is is it has urban rooms upstairs, which I think are a harder sell. These are not exhibition spaces. It's more these are spaces that could welcome people to just come in and, and think about design and urbanism. I think that's harder to do. You don't have to pay to be there. No, no. And we do lack these spaces, crucially in cities, especially with libraries shutting down. Um, there's so few places to gather where you're not expected to purchase something in order to purchase your time sitting. Yeah, there. that that's true. And I think one of the one of the things which really stayed with me a little bit after the visit, and it sounds a bit stupid because it's such a small thing, but I think it's actually a program like this, which is very good and could be helpful. They have this thing called uh, Tea at Three, where on Fridays you can go in, you get free tea and biscuits. Now, I think we should have a Tea in Three. <laughs> we, don't have the, we, we, we don't have the budget. <laughs> <laughs> Not until the crit starts bringing in some juicy corporate sponsorship. <laughs> but yeah, and it's such a small thing, but it's very nice that they have actually put aside a budget to do this, you know, to lay on refreshments for people can go in and while they're there, you know, they can they can chat about the city, they can reflect on it. And it's small gestures but i think participatory things like that do do build up and they're really good at bringing in an audience who maybe aren't hardcore urbanists who aren't just going to go to these places anyway um but you know fresh audiences who can find it and then start to think oh actually that's quite interesting i'd, I'd like to come to visit this more so uh, i think a really promising start from the farrell center I'm looking forward to following it over over the next few years and, and seeing if it can build on this And as promised, on to the uh, delicious pudding of this episode, the interview. Um, mentioned I spoke to Jean Lee, uh, co-founder of Ladies and Gentlemen, and their exhibition is called Public Access. Now, Public Access is the latest initiative from an international design collective called Furnishing Utopia. And the premise of the exhibition is to ask how creative practices can be more rooted in acts of care and empathy for the external world, which... India, I'm sure you can agree, uh, not a bad call to arms after what we've been talking about in this episode. Very on topic. Well done, past Ollie, for such a... He's always thinking that guy, isn't he? He's always... <laughs> always on the ball, always thinking ahead. <laughs> always thinking about how to balance Kanye West. And <laughs> um, the exhibition includes 36 works from 39 international designers. And each of these works is a community-focused, context-specific piece. Um, any number of things, you know, wildlife habitats, public seating, rainwater collection systems, so on. All of the works are represented visually at Head High in New York, who we've worked with before. An interesting sort of coffee, book space, uh, very nice work there. And some of the pieces are also physically present at the Naval Cemetery Landscape in Brooklyn Navy Yard. So a sort of exhibition in two parts. Um, I think it's a nice note to end on this notion of design as something community serving, as design that should be trying to engage with people. And, you know, it's a bit trite, but... Do do some good, not just 
flog ethically dubious trainers and ethically dubious megacities. So I think that's where I'm going to sign off and sign on to my past self. Um, Hand over to my past self who spoke to Jean Lee. Over to you, Oliver. (laughs) So welcome to the crit, Jean. It's very nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure. So we're here today to discuss Public Access, um, an exhibition that you've curated. Uh, should say, though, this exhibition isn't from um, Ladies and Gentlemen Studio, right? It's from Furnishing Utopia, a collective that you're a part of. So maybe to start us off, you can tell us a little bit about Furnishing Utopia and what that project is. Yeah, so Furnishing Utopia is a group project that essentially initiated was initiated by um, our friends uh, Studio Gorm, John, and Wang He aren't, and they are. They have a practicing design studio in Eugene, Oregon, but they also teach the. They're the, uh, yeah, they're professor, also directors at um at University of Oregon for the industrial design department, and I think it was through John's when he was doing a, a sabbatical and doing research and, uh, spending a lot of time, uh traveling to Japan and Scandinavia and then also looking at Shaker, looking at the continuity of like this universal sort of uh, design or a, a philosophy around the objects and the value of, you know, timelessness and craft and um, between those three places, even though it existed independently before internet existed, right? <laughs> before there was um, in, influence from each other. Um, and so I think it was through his research that he just realized there was a lot more to Shaker design that he even, be, you know, be more than he knew about, which was, you know, I think typically Shaker design people just think, oh, like a reference, the Shaker rail that they hang the chairs from or, um, or the Shaker chairs that are very iconic. But there is, as he spent more time doing, like studying their philosophy, he realized there is more to like their philosophy that is very holistic and um, very progressive. It was founded, um, the Shaker group was founded by Anne Lee, who's a woman, and she essentially uh, left Europe to. Um, to find her own sort of religious freedom in the U.S. and then start like started the gospel of Shaker <laughs> idealism and creating heaven on earth essentially. Um, and granted, like this is a it is a religious sector and then a religious sect, but that um, I think as designers were just very naturally drawn to their sensibility and it's always a mystery in how they have this innate, uh, it's somehow an unspoken, I guess. It's a very unspoken um, attunement to materiality and um, and design and also thoughtfulness in everything they, they make. Um, so that started from that. And so he invited a group of designers and him and his wife, uh, Wang He invited a group of designers. I think it was just a conversation. Um, it was back in 2015. And they were, they asked if 
we be interested in visiting there together with them and do some sort of research workshop or creative workshop and really didn't have any plan whatsoever besides that um, it would be great to go there as a group of perf- like designers and sort of get back into um, the discovery mode and research mode almost like students <laughs> back in the days and um, and so it was yeah fall of 2015 that we went and it was group of designers with Jonah Takagi and um, Darren Montgomery of Finn Studio from Seattle and Gabriel Tan um, who's from Singapore who's been also been there um, Helger Homestead from Norway so it was like a really interesting international group of people and then it was the first time that any of us have done that together and we just spent four days straight just looking at the archives talking to the uh, curators and exploring and studying taking pictures and um, seeing how everything was how they lived essentially um, and then from that we they invited other designers that were able to that we shared all our sort of findings digitally and then created the first debut exhibit in 2016 that I think we had about almost like 30 pieces that were like more inspired by the aesthetics and then reinterpreting it in a contemporary kind of perspective from our own individual perspective. And it was just a really refreshing and and it was a yeah a whole new process that we never done before either to do something that was out of um, it was more for the focus of learning and reinterpreting and um, expressing these the shaker spirits through our lens, mm. but without any commercial really agenda to it <laughs> besides the this desire to um, want to explore this idea. What what do you see? I mean, you mentioned there the shaker spirit and this approach towards design and a more holistic view of it. What do you see that as being? Because as you as you pointed out earlier, um, shakers, you know, it's a it's a very particular cultural context. But from what you've said so far, I, I, I take it one yes, it is a mediate uh, meditation upon that context, but is also looking at sort of applying or exploring some of those values more widely and seeing how they could resonate within design at large. So what is that spirit you're taking from that research? What what kind of perspective on design is Furnishing Utopia offering? Yeah, I think that whole questioning, you know, we were looking at even how they lived and just pondered about like what life was like back then. Granted, it was very gender segregated as this, you know, as you know, they're a celibate religion and um, and it was more almost like operated like a monastery in a way that everybody, you know, did chores together, had different roles, but there wasn't like a um, strong hierarchy in a sense that there's one single, uh, you know, leader per se, and it was more like a group. So this idea... We, I think what was really intriguing was thinking about what does utopia mean in this through like the design discourse. And granted, you know, it's not, it is like people joke like utopian is impossible, but I, you know, I think it's less about 
finding what utopia, finding the perfect utopia, but it's more about the process of aspiring towards, um, you know, a more perfect kind of, I mean, perfect is relative and is very subjective, but I think, you know, thinking, I think it's more about the process of trying to seek that um, idealism or, um, and knowing that it's nothing is fixed and, yeah, it's more of like the discovery process. But I think um, there was this looking in terms of like the process of studying and talking, like we had a lot of great conversations and how does it, looking back and then reflecting on like the current time and and what does it even mean for the future? And I think that's what encapsulated our um our finding was that you know the importance of looking back at something grand even though we you know none of us are religious in that way and and i think it's more about transcending certain ideas and ideals to think about how we could apply that in an everyday sense and and maybe and also in craft um in craft in japan or different cultures that craft is a form of spirituality from like a in the sense that's like a internal, it can be a very spiritual practice. Um, uh-huh. Even it has nothing to do with religious uh, associations, right? And so I think there was a lot of intrigue in or curiosity around like, what is it? Um, what are we designing for? And you know, thinking more about the deeper form of expression or idealism or perhaps ways of connecting with the material or perhaps the user or the context or thinking about how something can live in the future. What would you say your relationship with that utopian ideal within design is because I I think that's an interesting topic and it's something which comes up a lot you know there's I think this idea of design this is a very recurrent one of it's a problem solving discipline it's there to make things better Um, and and it's very easy to be attracted to that at the same time you have a sort of counter movement you know I'm thinking of things like the design and violence program at MoMA pointing out that, you know, design does as much harm as it does good. Yeah. How, how do you connect to that debate yeah. and feel in relation I mean, I to it? I totally agree that design isn't here to solve anybody's problems. <laughs> and I think that's what the, I think there was, a, that I do agree it does need like reframing. And, but design, in many ways, it's form of expression, I think. And even from... You know, when people started using tools or rocks as a hammer to, you know, making utensils from when it's like old ancient artifacts, those are all designed designed objects because it's more about thinking ways. Um, I feel like design became more, perhaps is more associated to the industrialization of like man-made, you know, the industrial design history but even before that design existed it's almost like a form of art but that design is has a more of a function um but in terms of does serve humans i think or serve with a purpose and i think that purpose the idea of purpose and serving is something that can be very subjective and it could be 
I think that's something that it's important to keep in mind that at the end of the day, how you interpret, how one designer interprets something, it can be biased. And I think it's important to know that we're, none of us are here can save the world per se or, um, or presume that design is the solution to everything. But that design is a practice. It's a, a form of expression. Um, and it could be um, as useful or as useless, depending on what that <laughs> person decides. And um, But also how people... But I think the difference with design is that it connects with not just the oneself. It has to relate with the rest of the world in a lot of ways, mm. more than I think art. I think art can be... Uh, you know, you just make art for your own self-expression. It's more pure of a self-expression um, outlet. And design, I think there's more about relating with other people and other contexts. I mean, that seems to tie very neatly with this particular iteration of Furnishing Utopia, which is public access. And, I mean, here you're looking at how creative practice... Um, can tie in with acts of care and empathy. But I think another important element is these acts are grounded within particular communities, right? They're not things that are necessarily done in the abstract. The the work being exhibited is responsive to particular communal needs and sort of community resources. Can you tell us a little bit about that exhibition and, and the work that's in it? Yeah, so the um, exhibition prompt is that it was a project that, or the idea came about essentially through COVID. Um, I mean, it, we were already thinking about more the ideas around, or the philosophy and approach that Shaker has was living, which is more the communal aspect of, you know, how they lived and how things were shared amongst one another and how they even consider their impact in relation to their natural world and to their surrounding. Um, and it's different levels of sharing from like between humans to plants, humans and plants and or plants and nature and architecture space to nature and things like that. Um, and so, but then when COVID hit, when the pandemic happened, I started to, I think, just noticing more the surrounding, but also noticing more that people, I mean, mainly through Instagram, of course, but that people started to slow down, started to take time outside, you know, to observe and doing more, or even start to volunteer to um, help with doing other kind of more um, communal mutual aid type work. This is when... Um, for example, one of the project, One Love Community came about, which is like a mutual aid um, fridge that happened that popped up around Brooklyn when there was a food shortage during the early pandemic days. And so just through these kind of noticing all these, uh, did how the pandemic disrupted our creative process, but, you know, just ourselves, our whole life in general. And then notice that maybe it actually originally it was supposed to just be like a a virtual show that oh maybe we could just do something in our own location and share it on online and then 
And then it's a nice way to connect with one another to see like what people are doing and how in in the type of place and the environment that they lived in. And then, but then just over time, I think we felt like maybe it makes more sense to do something when in person and, and it just happened that it took like about, you know, two and a half years to <laughs> happen and didn't want to rush it either. So, and then, you know, I think there was also a, a lot of question of like time is relative that we could stretch or there's really no rush to have to do a show right away. And um, so I think it just unfolded the way it did, but I threw a lot of back and forth and like interesting zoom calls with so many people or texting and, um, and that I just felt like it could be a nice way to show or put together exhibit that, and also a brief, like a prompt that could encourage people to respond, to go out, to connect with the external world outside and only not just thinking about oneself and the safety of oneself and the comfort of oneself, you know? And, but I think because we've been in the industry of mainly serving the interior world, you know? And um, so when pandemic happened, it was just a lot of reckoning with, oh, wow, we've been so disconnected. We've been in our own bubble for so long. And there's this whole world out there, you know, environmental issues and, or even not even have necessarily have to say like worrying about environmental, we do need to worry about environmental issues, but then like realize how little we know or how little we notice on a day-to-day basis. And I think the exhibit or the project public access is about just mainly starting with the act of noticing and observing and then connecting and then doing. That's kind of really it. And then and then I we're very clear that be you know, to in the prompt that is this is not about fixing anything. This is not about solving anything. But it's about putting out like a seed of germination of idea to try to like to get back into that practice of just putting out there or and trying and then see what happens. Maybe put something out there and it gets damaged. That happens, but that's how it, you know, like, but then, or maybe put something out there and then somebody use it in a different way. And that's actually, you know, the surprises um, that we can learn. And I think is, it can, I think it's interesting to sort of think about the design practice in a much more collaborative and intuitive way rather than uh, presuming and planning. Can you give us some examples of the responses that these different studios have come up with to that brief? Because it, it's it's a brief and a prompt that could be interpreted in any number of ways, right? I mean, as you said, yeah. it's almost about participating in the world around you. And there are, there are so many different ways of participating yeah. and so many different ways of doing that through design. Um, it might be helpful to make this concrete. What, what are some of the responses you've had to that? Yeah, so there's a reason why we kept it very open is because we didn't want to tell anybody what kind of things to make and based on where they are because we don't know the environment that they live in or what's actually needed or um, things like that. So some of the examples, people, I mean, I think the most like obvious ones like, oh, like birdhouses because they started, like people, some people started to spend more time outside bird watching and things like that um, or bird feeders. Um, there's example of 
um, Jonah Takagi, he does, he goes on uh, bike rides in the woods a lot. And so him and his friend, um, Pete Euler, and, and so they decided to design a bench that also docks a bike. So it's more like a rest, a place to rest when you're um, uh, mountain biking. And, and another example, we have One Love Community, which is a nonprofit um, mutual aid uh, fridge organization. And they decided to create this bigger, instead of just only looking at the fridge, is actually expanding, creating a modular system that holds other um, perhaps publications or plants and vegetables and food, like pantry type food. Um, and the idea is that it can uh, grow or shift or, trend, you know, sort of uh, fit depending on the sites, like adapt to different sites and needs. Um, we have uh, Sina um, Soharb, that uh, he uh, lives in Madrid and decided to design a binocular, a free binocular that just sits in the park and that anybody could go out and look at around, you know, what's around. Um, and actually looks, it's really cute. It's like a, almost looks like a Wally type <laughs> binocular and it's made with um, existing parts from hardware stores essentially. Yeah, and then, oh yeah, we have a designer also designed a possum shelter <laughs> in Mexico, in Monterrey, Mexico, um, Jorge. Diego Etienne, and um, yeah, and I guess they do have possums there and um, and something that they're not as like, not as much of a pest as people think they are. <laughs> and they're very, you know, harmless <laughs> creatures. And and so, yeah, it's just stuff like I wouldn't ever thought to think about, oh, caring for possums even though most people perhaps think they're like oh scary looking but you know all these animals they're just animals they just want to exist and <laughs> um just like anybody else right um and um and then for us we designed um because we live on the beach and started to notice sometimes people lose things and it'll just we when we go on walks we find a lot of band you know lost shovels or toys and sunglasses or hats and whatnot and um even in new york when people lose things especially like kids things like uh shoes or hats or something people would put it on a fence so i started noticing that like um how there's this that moment when you know just like thinking about that moment whoever decided to put that thing on a fence it's more like that's a consideration of care like maybe they'll come back and and you know, need it and is looking for it. So we came up with a give and take. Um, it's more like a station that if you find something, you could put it there. If you see something there and you need it, you could take it. Um, and so instead of just leaving it on the beach or throwing it away. Do, do you see the exhibition as uh, as offering any kind of commentary on broader design practice? Because I mean, I think most designers would say that they want their work to embody a lot of the values you've been discussing there. You know, they want it to be attentive to communities. They want it to serve people, to be democratic, to be sensitive to the environment. Um, I, I, I suppose the problem is 
it, it's very hard to always embody those values within your practice, right? The sort of funding models. I think most designers at some point, you know, to, to, to bring in money to the studio have to do works which I'm, I'm sure they're proud of them in, in their own way, but, you know, where they would feel perhaps it isn't ultimately serving that kind of view. How, how do you see the, the, the exhibitions relating to some of those broader structural issues within the field? Yeah, I mean, it, it is such a, and that is something that between a lot of us talking, it's like, oh, we feel that, that um, just feeling torn as designers and even guilty in a lot of ways that we're feeding into this problem of producing things that is not necessarily always needed or serving the 1% perhaps. And, um, and, and I think, I don't think any of us started got into design only wanting to do that, right? And I think this is what Furnishing Utopia, I, I think that's why we started, got so, I got so invested within Furnishing Utopia because it's an outlet for us to, to try to, or to experiment, to think about these bigger values or deeper values or intrinsic values beyond commercial interests and, um, and then just, give ourselves the permission to explore without having to become experts of, you know, one thing or the other. Because I think, yeah, it can be very intimidating because especially now, like, with environmental, you could be an environmentalist, you could be an activist, and everything feels still very siloed. So I think, and so it feels intimidating to just, and we don't want to be, presum I don't want to be presumptuous and hey, and be that I can solve the problem type of designer, right? <laughs> Again, you know, so I think it's, and then so how do we reckon with that? Um, so then, yeah, how do we reckon with that kind of challenge? And I think this is why perhaps there's a reason for public access is to just show that, oh, we can just start and try some ideas just as similar to when the DIY movement um, the hippie movement and um, that they just started to try some things. And um, and I think the other inspiration source too was like the little free libraries. It's a um, little, you know, houses or structures that people put books in front of their fence or, you know, in the city around or anywhere and people could leave books and take books. It has, you know, it's, I'm, I don't think we're, what we're doing is anything new, is simply reinterpreting it and expanding on it. And mm. and yeah, it was, it's, it's an interesting process because a lot of, there are designers that, and even for us, like we kind of struggle with that. Oh, how do we do something that doesn't seem presumptuous and, but then still offer and still provide something? So I think we landed on just like, accepting that this is just an evolution and that this is a jumping off point and um and it's more of, and a lot of the ideas may not they're not perfect they're kind of crude in some ways too um or yeah it's just it's a working progress but i think it's more about the start of just doing and seeing how it goes and um and not have too high of an expectation that it needs to solve problems <laughs> and um, go from there. And I think the hope is that it could get people to want to, to take notice or to want to do something and to make something of their own. And maybe it could be, um, and it could be like a growing 
growing community. It could be a, like a global community of like public access projects, things like that. Um, and there's a reason why it was very open, open brief because then it allows for possibility different types of ideas to come through without limiting it to just benches or something. How would you like the project to be received by the public or what kind of thoughts would you like it to provoke? Because the communication aspect is clearly a really strong dimension of this, right? It's being exhibited during a design week. These pieces have been installed in their communities. And then in New York, you have photo documentary, uh, sorry, photo documentation of all of them at head high. You have some of the pieces physically installed in the Naval Cemetery landscape. I think design as a field, as you say, is so broad. There are so many different ways of practicing it and engaging with it. I don't know this for sure, but my suspicion is when you say designer to someone who's not in the industry, that field, they, they probably have the classical industrial designer in mind, right? You know, it, it's maybe someone like Johnny Ive and that that production of product for industry, which, you know, it's great not knocking it, but it, it's a very different vision to what's being presented. Yeah. yeah. How, how would you like people to react to this? And and I think as importantly, how, how do you expect them to react to it? Do you, do you think people will be surprised that this is design and what and what's being presented? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the it's part it's like embedded in the name, right? I think access like so public and access. So breaking down these words and access in itself is more of like, how how to think about design to make it more accessible. And then to demystify for not just, you know, for for more people and not just only serving and uh, expecting that it's only for designers to understand. And I think that's the thing with, I feel like with design, it shouldn't just be so siloed and it can be more, um, like want to expand that reach as well. So I, I think I, we hope is that, it can encourage people to take notice, even if you're just walking by. That's why we wanted to get actually the pieces installed. And that was like what's important to actually put something out there and put it to use. And rather than theorizing and speculating, you know, conceptual design. And But then it's all just conceptual. It doesn't actually get to use. Like people, you don't actually, if you don't use it, it really doesn't serve its own retention. Like it, then the idea just really falls short, right? Like design thinking as a practice is like, it could only go so far until you actually do it, you know, like, um, and, and I think perhaps that whole design solving problem is why it's a problem because it's only thinking is very intellectual. It's all in the mind and, uh, in the abstract rather than in practice. So I think the idea is like, if these pieces, um, can exist and people could use it, even just people walking by could use it. It starts from there and they're like, oh, this thing that somebody made and maybe they'll realize it's a, a part of design. They're like, oh, that's design? I can make it. Oh, here's... And because all the also the objects, all the project will be open source, will provide like instructions, it'll be available online and then people could print it themselves. And then so hopefully some people, maybe there will be people who aren't designers and decide is curious enough to look into it and then... Um, you know, realize they could do something themselves. And I think that's kind of nice, like, if they, if it inspires that or encourages that or, you know, things like that. So um, I, I think our 
my hope is that the communicate like this project can communicate that design is accessible and then it doesn't have to be limited to people who can afford things and um afford to buy things i guess and that a lot of the project too um serves or they use like repurpose material so there's a norwegian brand minus furniture they using um, resalvage pallet wood to create a series of um, stools that can be used, for example. Um, oh yeah, there's another designer, Kaya Dahl. Um, she's also from Norway and she decided to do like more like an Ikea hack, the table that with the plywood kind of leg and decided to cut that in half or in thirds and then turn the leg around so it almost looks like a shelf with an L bracket and then mounts it on like posts like on uh, street lamp posts or trees and then turns into a little uh, DIY table that people could use. Um, so something like that. It's like very, very simple and it's not high design, but it's, it's, it's clever, you know, it's clever design that, and I think we're, trying to hit that um, lo-fi but elevated or lo-fi but high thinking, you know, that mixing that, mixing those ideas together. Jin Lee, thank you for joining us on The Crit. Well, that was a wonderful past, Ollie. Uh, it definitely delivered on the delicious pudding front. Everyone's had a, a well-rounded, a balanced meal today of, of criticism and I like the idea hope. that included in the balanced uh, meal was like a horrible starter. <laughs> Just an awful starter. A real anti-amusing yeah. boosh. My really boosh was to, not amused. You need to taste for bitterness in the starter to then appreciate the deliciousness to come later. But yeah, no. Uh, thank you for listening. If if you want to get in touch, if you want to enter the mayoral elections for the Sheriff of Ex- Ethics Town, um, you can reach us on thecrit at com. or if you want to offer us some delightful sponsorship. You can also find us on social media. We are under the handle at journal. And um, we've been a little bit remiss. We haven't been thanking them enough, but uh, hopefully this will make up for the fact that uh, we are very grateful to convene um, at 22 Bishopsgate. They gave us the recording space today. Um, it's very comfortable. And thank you to everyone at Convene for your kind support. Um, if you want to find out more about Convene's workplaces, I promise their snack bar game is excellent. Ollie's had two Diet Cokes today. Um, anyway, if you want to find out more about them, um, they're in London and other cities, you can visit them at convene.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crit, which was co-hosted by me, Ollie Stratford, and India Block. It was produced and edited by Evie Hall. All music for The Crit has been created by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram, and our logo was designed by Leonard Rothmeiser. 